Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is joined by Renewable Energy Executive Adam Hapel, who was most recently the General Manager of Rivian's EV charging business. Join us as they discuss Adam's professional journey at companies like Tesla and SolarCity, as well as the common questions and concerns surrounding electric vehicles. They also explore the exciting possibilities for collaboration between EV and solar companies. All of this and more, right now on The Solar Podcast. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone back to The Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, the host. We're thrilled to have with us today, uh, Adam Hapel. Adam, I've actually known for quite a while. We've actually done work together professionally some, but I know him more from some of his exploits and some of the things that he's been able to accomplish in the renewable space. Most recently, he was at Rivian, uh, led a huge team over there um, with some pretty cool initiatives that we're going to want to definitely uh, talk about today, but has a has a lot of experience in solar as well. So I think those two uh, experiences specifically in solar, but then also the time that he spent at Rivian working on EV charging. And every, anyone that listens to the solar podcast knows that these are things that I'm particularly interested about. Most of our listeners are uh, particularly interested about these sorts of things as well. So, Adam, we'd love to welcome you to the show. I'm sure that there's things I'd left out. We'd love to get a little bit more of a biography on you as well. Great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me here on the Solar Podcast. I'm uh, really excited to, to talk to you here. Um, yeah, so most recently, I was the general manager of Rivian's EC charging business. So that includes the home charging, but also the Rivian Waypoints network, which is the public level two network. Um, in my bio, though, or in my past, I spent a lot of time in the solar industry as well. So I worked at SolarCity, a stint at Tesla, uh, also at JF Energy, which was a company that's building a, a competitor to the Tesla Solar. Um, previous to that, I was a management consultant for, man, way too long. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, you've spent a lot of time in renewables, particularly. So uh, a lot of people feel really cause-driven, want to be part of it because of something that either the way they grew up or something that they learned in business school or something that they learned uh, just along the way. So how is it that you happened into uh, renewable energy specifically? And it can be a painful industry as well because there's lots of ups and downs with it. So what's kind of kept you in this industry as well or in this space for as long as it, as you have been in? Yeah, it's, it's a good point you make there, Dave. This is not a, not a place for tourists. Um, there's a lot of ups and downs, but the main reason and the main driver for being here is really the impact that we can make. So you know, for me, I have a degree in environmental science. And if you go back multiple decades at this point where I was getting my degree, there was something very different. I was really studying, you know, honestly, like fish in the ocean and soil, different types of soils, things like that. It wasn't exactly climate science, but it was thinking about the environment in terms of how man's impact, man can impact it. Um, so I'd always been kind of interested in environmental science and man's impact on what we're doing climate change really started coming into play more as I left and got into my consulting career. I was working with the EPA and thinking a lot about how we, we work there. I realized really quickly that the biggest impacts were kind of in those two sectors that I worked in for the last, uh, you know, 15 years, which are energy and transportation. So um, transportation and energy generation, as most of your listeners probably know, are responsible for more than half of the, the carbon impact or carbon emissions in the US every year and really looking for places that I could have an impact there in changing that or pushing towards decarbonization is, is what drove me into renewables in the first place. Yeah, I would say if you look at your career trajectory as well, you've probably worked at some of the most exciting companies at the most exciting times. So the period of time when you were at Solar City was a massive growth phase, uh, a massive growth phase for solar generally. 
but massive growth phase for uh, Solar City specifically. So what were some of the life lessons or some of the lessons that you learned um, or what are, what are some of the sort of like uh, things that the solar industry was figuring out during your period of time while you were there? And what did you focus on for Solar City while you were there? Yeah. So, you know, while I was there, I focused a lot on uh, a couple different things. Most importantly, just customer acquisition. So thinking about how do we go acquire more customers quickly for, for less money, as, as you know, the, the economics of acquiring a new solar customer, particularly back in the 2014, 15, 16 time period was it probably costs you more than the customer generates in revenue. So a lot of my focus was on that. And one of the learnings there, one was growth at all costs really does have a cost. Um, and that is exactly that. Sometimes you spend a lot of money to acquire a customer and that is not an economic customer to bring on. So thinking about how you do that better, more quickly, you know, for, for less money really came down to, to driving a better customer experience um, throughout the sales journey or the acquisition journey, but also really getting to know and understand the customer's wants and needs better than we ever had before. So when I first joined Solar City, it was kind of a try everything, throw it all at the wall, see what sticks. Um, and really what I tried to drive there was one, understand the customer as well as you can. So that was things like customer segmentation and just doing much more research on what a prospective solar buyer wants and needs, and then really honing the message around that so that people aren't spending time, you know, asking lots of questions about what the panels look like on the roof. What really, what they're concerned about is how much money do I save every month and creating messages around that and, and being able to say like, great, here's kind of what you're looking for, put you into the, the sales journey, um, and then really hone the, the experience that the customer has throughout the sales and then installation journey to make sure that we're providing really, really good customer service and good customer experience throughout. Um, because as you know, there's sort of high turnover and, and cancellation rates in the solar industry historically, and managing that as best as possible really came down to making sure the customer was having a good experience. Yeah, a couple of things I'd love to dive into. The first one is, do you remember just pulling on your memory banks? What was the sort of like target customer acquisition dollar amount or what? how did you guys value a customer? What was your what was the, the edict from the management in terms of like this is where we need to be acquiring customers for at this price? Yeah, the, the beauty of being at a, a sort of high flying company like SolarCity at the time was, you know, we we were having a lot of fun and there weren't necessarily the the hard numbers like, hey, your target is X dollars. It was typically your target is more customers, less money, right? So um, it gave you the freedom or gave me and the team freedom to try a lot of different things. Um, but just to, to put some hard numbers in place, you know, I think, man, this is going back a while, but at the, at, at the start, our customer acquisition costs were in the multiple thousands of dollars to acquire one customer and the economics were such that like you were losing probably three or $4,000 for every customer you signed up over that 20 year PPA time period. Um, so really we spent a ton of time to drive that down and say, take it down to $2,000 cost of acquisition, $1,500, $1,200, $500, to make sure that we were getting to the point that for every customer signed up, we were able to actually make money on, on the deal. So um, by the time I left, I think we had gone from losing about $2,000 per customer we acquired to making about twelve or twelve or $1,500 per customer over that over the life of their uh, contract with SolarCity. Yeah, it's kind of a nice segue, actually. The, the things you're talking about that made SolarCity special was they, they had a really extensive sort of multifaceted approach to acquire customers. 
uh, whether it was they had their retail channels, they had an online space, they were they 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 had a large direct to consumer door to door model as well. So, um, and uh, now just sort of thinking about their high growth. In fact, I think at the time you were there, they maybe had what forty percent market share, something like that, in terms of the solar. Getting close to forty percent, and I know that was something that that we looked at, um, you know, quite a bit. And and uh, yeah, we're bouncing somewhere between like thirty-two and thirty-eight percent uh, any given quarter. Yeah, yeah, and of course, the solar industry has grown extensively. So, in absolute numbers, it wouldn't be forty percent today. But it was in in terms of percentage of the market, it was uh, the, the the share was incredible that solar city had for a period of time um and then at some point it started to deteriorate and it wasn't really that the absolute numbers were going down in solar city although they they kind of stagnated and then they, they did start to fall off um competitors started to get more competitive and started to generate more and more customers what do you think uh, led to the sort of like precipitous decline of the percentage of, of market penetration that solar city had the the sort of like dominance that they enjoyed for so long and what do you think ultimately led? And I would say, I mean, you could call it the ultimate decline, right? Because it, Tesla came in and, and you were part of that and, and, and acquired SolarCity. But, uh, you know, even today, solar, uh, you know, the SolarCity that existed before really kind of is no longer. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that happened. I think one is, um, you know, competition was intense in, in that space. And, and in the earlier days, there were sort of a lot of folks coming in starting up and kind of flaming out just because of the, the, the difficult economics from a, particularly from a national scale. Um, you know, the second piece is that everyone got better, right? Like the good companies that came in to play got better at what they were doing, acquiring customers faster, cheaper, providing great service, installing great systems, understanding their customers and finding that reach. Um, so one, it's just a highly competitive space as, as you know, um, two, I, I think part of the, the challenge is when you are that big and you have 30 plus percent market share nationally um, and the industry is growing at 15 to 20% per year, keeping pace with that becomes really difficult. And there was a time of solar state in the early days where we were doubling every year. And then we were trying to grow by 50% every year, right? Like outpacing massive market growth is really expensive. So we were spending tens of millions of dollars on digital advertising, tens of millions of dollars on field work, you know, field sales, tens of million dollars on the direct door to door stuff. So it just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's really difficult to, to keep that pace. Um, and then the next piece is like through the Tesla acquisition, Tesla typically doesn't advertise, doesn't do all of the, the things that the solar industry was used to. So we started dialing back a lot of our um, digital activities, no more social footprint, no more, much less um, digital advertising, so, so stop working with the ad agencies and the networks, things like that, um, and really focusing more just on brand and then uh, sort of their, we would call it field in the solar, but sort of the, the activities that, that uh, Tesla had, like their storefronts and things like that. So selling, selling uh, at the same time someone's going to buy an electric vehicle, things like that. So it was really, really focused, drove down the cost of acquisition significantly, uh, but of course the reach of just relying entirely on brand is, is fairly low because you're no, you're no longer telling the solar message anymore. You're sort of telling the broader Tesla story and most of the people coming into that were really worried, not worried, excited about um, buying an electric vehicle, less so about going solar or getting a battery. 
And I'd love to get your perspective on this as well. So Tesla today, at least on the solar side, they seem to be, um, you know, obviously you can go to their website and you can sign up for solar only. But for the most part, if you're going to get a Tesla system uh, installed today, it's either because you bought a Tesla car and it's part of the checkout process. Maybe you bolted it on or added it on. Or maybe you already own a Tesla car and, uh, and you got some sort of uh, an advertisement from Tesla. So they do continue to advertise to their existing customers. And they've, they've, they've tried to be recently a real price leader, but uh, for whatever reason, it hasn't been a real price elastic product. In other words, even though they've got this really low cost of act or really low price to purchase solar, um, they don't have the sort of uh, maybe fast paced growth that a lot of people expected maybe they would at those sorts of price points. Why do you think that that might be the case? Why do you think that they're still, still sort of like, I mean, they're a player certainly in the solar space, but um, they're not doing uh, the sort of volume you might expect a price leader to do, um, you know, like it is in other industries, like in the internet or other residential services businesses. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple things at play here. One is, you know, customer preferences are changing. I think if you talk to me five, six, seven, eight years ago, I'd say price is it, right? How much money can I save on a monthly basis? Um, and that's where PPAs and leases came to play. You could say like, I guarantee you will save 20% per month on your bill. And that was the main driver. I think something like 60% you know, of SolarCity's original customers were raising their hands and said, I want to save money, right? period. That's it. That's the only thing. The cool thing is the generally the price of solar has come down pretty significantly since those days. Um, so now everyone can save, right? It's, it's less of the exotic PPAs and leases, kind of some of the, the crazier deals we were running back then. Um, so you kind of get that baked in and now it's really coming down to the, the customer experience. So if you are coming through a digital acquisition, sort of coming through the website, put your name into a lead, ac you know, lead acquisition form, uh, lead capture form, and never hear from someone or maybe hear from someone two weeks later, three weeks later, you've probably already moved on. You've called somebody else. Somebody else has come to your home, sit down with you or generate a proposal for you online, sit um, and kind of got, got you through the process. Someone answers the phone when you call. I think a lot of times, um, as Tesla's dialed back some of their, their customer service folks, um, if I'm a solar customer and I'm nervous about this big project, I want to be reassured. I want to be talked through um, the process. And that's just happening less and less these days because they're trying to keep the cost of acquisition as low as possible, which means spending less money on um, sort of those upfront activities that help a company a customer feel comfortable making that decision, knowing that it's going to be a 20, 25, 30 year decision that they make. It's something you probably only have to do once in your, in your lifetime. Um, so as a lot of the other companies are still maintaining the ability to, to pick up and answer the phone uh, when a customer calls with a question or a problem, or even more importantly, you know, generate a quote that gives them the confidence they're making the right decision on day one or within 24 hours of submitting their name. I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, whereas the, the more nonchalant, like, Hey, we'll get to you when we get to you approach, um, probably turns a lot of people off, even if you're going to have the lowest price in the market. Um, especially knowing that, you know, the way pricing works today, you're going to save money regardless versus having like price shopping, like, Oh, I might be spending more with competitor a less with competitor B like you're saving money with everybody now. Um, so that's sort of the, the table stakes. So it really comes down to who's creating the really good journeys as, as customers go through the sales and installation process and then the, the customer experience afterwards because people talk right and, and 
a referral business is real. Um, and that works both ways. So you have, you have a great experience, you refer 10 of your friends, three of them will probably go solar. If you have a terrible experience, you tell all of your friends to never use that company, they probably wipe it off the board uh, from the very, very start. So I think that's a really important distinction where, you know, again, Tesla has a great product, um, great people over there, great pricing, uh, but sometimes the journey to get from purchase the installation to enjoying saving money on energy every month is not what it used to be. Yeah. So you left Tesla to go join GAF and GAF, GF, GAF Energy to be specific. And so we should talk about GAF Energy and the the relation that the relationship they had with GAF uh, uh, in as much as there was one. Um, but what was the sort of like draw to, to leave Tesla the, one of the largest companies in the world to go to, over to, to work with GAF. Yeah, there's a couple of things, you know, GAF is, is a portfolio company for standard industries who as a whole are the largest roofing materials manufacturer in the world. Um, so GAF is their, their biggest U S business. Um, they make asphalt shingles, um, and they are the largest manufacturer of that product in North America. The really cool thing is that they have this massively loyal uh, sales channel of roofers. So um, the roofing business is non-cyclical. It does, it's not subject to things like economic boom or bust times. Um, people need a new roof when they need a new roof. How do you know you need a new roof? Because your roof is leaking. What do you want a new roof? You want it right now. Um, so roofers have a really wonderful business in terms of, you know, going out, acquiring the customer for almost no cost, um, putting a roof on, making great margins, great business. So the, the roofers as a sales and installation channel are incredibly loyal to GAF, the roofing company, and really are always looking for kind of the next new thing, whether that's, you know, installing a new skylight or installing some other technology that goes on the roof and solar is, is one of those. So the, the hypothesis was by utilizing that roofing sales channel, we could acquire customers really just by training the channel to be solar sales people and ultimately installers. And then the second piece was developing the, the technology to make it really simple and easy to install solar on a roof for a roof specific to a roofer, right? So um, one of the things we learned in talking to roofers was like, hey guys, you know, you're talking about installing solar and I need a drill and I have to understand lag bolts and, you know, all these other specialized tools and, you know, electrical runs, things like that. They're like, I show up with a hammer. That's all you need to install a roofer is a hammer. What can you do for me? So that like was a huge insight for us to start working on developing a new product that was nailable to the roof, could go and be installed almost the same way a shingle can, taking away the sort of the, the learning curve on installing a, a racking system or a mounting system, things like that. So that was one of the, you know, sort of the big learnings there is like, oh, great. There's certainly ways to do this that fit the installation mold that they're used to. And you kind of get the customer acquisition because of that. So, so that's kind of how the big aha moment with the, the GAF energy folks. Um, and they have a really great business going right now where they're you know, kind of growing really, really quickly. I think they're opening a factory in Texas right now um, and doing really well in, in that model. So it's an exciting time to be there as well. Basically was the fourth employee there from launch, helped them get it off the ground and, and got to do some really cool things and meet some really cool people. Yeah. And one of the things that you learn when you go to business school is, is that you learn the propensity of a person to purchase, right? So you do all this market research, you put people into cohorts, you say, what's the person's propensity to purchase? 
And a lot of marketing, uh, excuse me, a lot of uh, business schools are sort of like changing the way that they think about that, right? Because just a propensity to buy is not necessarily a correlation as to when they buy. They might have a high propensity to, but it's not the reason that people purchase. And when we think about solar, it's just like, hey, if you're going to get a roof, that's like a great time to add solar on. But for whatever reason, there's been several different companies and several different uh, versions of trying to get roofers to become solar people that are promoting and pushing solar. But it's actually been a struggle for the industry. Why do you think that that might be the case? I mean, I have a lot of my own opinions about this, but what were the big struggles that you saw when you were at GAF and and what are your sort of like personal takeaways as you've sort of like been an outsider looking at it as well as when you were on the inside, employee number four, working on that exact problem and uh, trying to come up with a solution for it? I mean, I think a big part of it is inertia in that industry. Um, if you're a roofer and have a nice roofing business lined up, make great money, right? And you know your business well, and it is very likely a family business. So you show up to a, a customer's house because they've called you. You don't have to call them. You don't have to advertise. They call you, right? They find you. They say, hey, my neighbor got a new roof two years ago. They said you were great. I have a leak. It is two weeks before Thanksgiving. I'm having 40 people at my home. I need you to put on a new roof, right? They can run that playbook all day long and they'll be fully employed, keep all their employees busy and working, make 30 to 40% EBITDA margin on their jobs. Right. So they walk away with a nice sack of cash in their pocket and it's rinse and repeat all day long. Now you're training, as I kind of alluded to earlier, training a, a reefer to sell a brand new product that is a technology that requires things like design and permitting that they're not used to, right. From a, from a standpoint of, uh, selling a roof versus selling a solar system. And the second part is the economics, right? So if you're, you're looking at it, you're like, Hey, you can double your ticket. A roof costs $25,000, solar system costs $25,000. You'll double your ticket, but you're probably going to make like 18 to 20% EBITDA margin on it. They're almost like, well, I might as well just add, you know, windows, siding, and a, and a, a skylight, right? And I'll make the same dollar margin for way less sales process, right? So it's been a lot of sort of that training and education going on and saying, yeah, but your customers actually want this, right? Like, they, they're going to be asking for solar and the best time to get solar is when you're getting a new roof. Um, so you're not putting solar on a 10 or 15 year old roof as, as you know, that's always a challenge. Um, so really introducing the sales process to, to those roofers that are interested and excited about selling solar is, is what's sort of changing that equation today. And I think in the past you typically had, um, a traditional roofing company introducing a, a solar product. And saying like, have at it guys, good luck. Uh, or you had a sort of ancillary product, part of a big, I'm thinking of like Dow, right? Like a, a solar product that was sort of like shingles, um, but you have neither the roofing experience and connections, nor do you have the solar expertise. You just sort of have a kind of a cool product. Um, and you throw it out into the marketplace and hope there's adoption. And I'm probably oversimplifying, um, you know, what what some of those folks are up to. But I think where, where it came to play was having a lot of solar expertise. Um, there was a whole bunch of solar city folks there, a whole bunch of sun power folks at JF energy pairing that with the great working relationships and channel partnerships with the roofers that GF and standard industries brought and putting those two things together is, is, is kind of the alchemy that, that results in success. Yeah. I think there's sort of like three, I, I've thought a lot about this problem actually that I think there's sort of like three major contributing factors as to why, 
the roofing industry hasn't sort of like taken over as the dominant source of finding customers and customer acquisition in the solar space. And it seems to be it's a, it's it's kind of three different reasons. And the, the, the very famous business mind, Clayton Christensen, used to talk about people don't purchase, even with the based on a propensity to purchase in his innovator's dilemma, he would talk about people hire products and services to do a very specific job. And the life events that happen leading up to getting a new roof are dramatically different than the life events that would lead up to a person getting solar. And we want to, as a solar industry and as a roofing industry, we look at that from a very pragmatic perspective and we think, oh, this is the perfect time to do both. Uh, but the things that lead you up to it, like a hailstorm, is probably one of those life events that leads you up to getting a roof um, or a hurricane or a lot of these other things. Um, and, uh, you know, those are the reasons that people get new roofs. It's not the reasons that people get solar. So the fact that the reasons people get roofs and the reasons people get solar are so different that that's actually one of the major hurdles of bringing those two products together. The other one is, is that from a licensing perspective, Roofing is so much simpler from an AHJ, the authorities having jurisdiction, the licensing that's required, the sort of technical training that one needs to have. It's so much different, um, you know, going from, you know, while no two roofs are the same, roofing a house with lots of, you know, putting a roof on any two roofs, no matter sort of what the configuration is kind of the same. With solar, it's so much more complicated and complex than that. And when you're talking about the licensing, I think those are the the two biggest contributors. Uh, and then the last one is one that I don't think it's talked about enough, which is roofers, unlike most residential services, uh, don't have, I mean, usually a roof has a, and I use this in, in air quotes, but a lifetime warranty. Most roofing systems do today. And so roofers don't think about customers in the context of lifetime value at all. It's a one and done sort of a transaction. Uh, the person that puts the roof on, I mean, I just had a roof put on my house not that long ago. I can't even remember the roofer's name. Most people don't know the roofer that put the roof on their house. So there's no sort of like personal interaction. There's no trusted advisor relationship in the same way that you would with even like your internet provider. Most people know who their internet provider is, uh, which is a much less expensive purchase or transaction. But the person that puts the roof on, which is a several thousand dollar transaction, most companies or most people after a year probably don't even remember the name of their roofer because they're they're here today. They did a good job or a bad job and they're gone forever. And and it's those sort of three things that have always made the roofing industry difficult to sort of like bring solar, which one requires a trusted advisor relationship Two people hire solar to do a much different job at a much different. You know, it's other life events that lead people there. And then the last part is, is the licensure. And the sort of technical training, both from a sales and installation part, you know, they're, they're, they're worlds apart, seemingly. Anyway, uh, but, but again, here in solar and roofers, we always try to figure out how do we bring those things together uh, to, 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 to make it work? Because it's, it's seemingly from a propensity to buy, it's the right homeowner, it's the right, you know, archetype of a, of a customer that we want to have at the right time to do it. So I'd love to get your, your take on any of those points. Yeah. I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning and just thinks, my goodness, I need to go solar today. I, I can't think of one customer that like without prompting, without learning about it, without seeing an ad, without get, answering a phone call the day before thinks, oh man, what I really need to do is do this massive, you know, construction project on my home to go solar. Um, because it is exactly that you need a trusted advisor. There's a learning curve or a learning experience that has to happen. 
understanding the benefits and why why it's written. Then people get really excited. For it. Then they want it faster. They want I want this. So I want the solar now. Can you start tomorrow? Can you start yesterday? Because I'm like not saving money or I'm not saving the environment or I'm not doing you know that that I want to do immediately. Um, whereas to your point, like on the roofing side, like you wake up and you know when you need a new roof, right? There's been a, a storm event. There's a leak. Some a, a tree fell on your house, right? There's something that happened where you actually wake up and you're like, oh my goodness, I need a new roof today. Um, and it's all you think about in your consumer. The, the interesting thing, I think, is that as you know, the, the solar industry itself grows, more and more people are getting exposed to the solar messaging. More and more people are learning more as they go along and finding the opportunities. Um, if you're a roofer, finding the opportunities where you find a customer that's already thinking about it, already interested, and being able to show them the the benefit of going new roof and solar at the same time is is what's going to be kind of most useful. I don't think that's ever going to be like this massive primary channel for solar sales across the entire industry, but there's probably a really large number people out there who want the advantage of only having to do the project once, uh, taking advantage of a lot of the, the incentives that come along with doing your uh, roofing project at the same time as your solar project, particularly for roof integrated solar, um, particularly cleaning the ITC in that that respect for, for anything that's a part of the solar system. Um, and the last is really, you know, roofers are local. It's a local business most times. Um, there's not one massive or two or three massive national roofing businesses. So oftentimes you are dealing with like the same company that sponsors the kids baseball team or, you know, shows up at the local parades and things like that. So while you, to your point, you probably don't remember who exactly did it a year later, but you got, you've probably seen those folks out in the community. So um, being able to build that level of, of trust there, I think is important for a subset of customers. Again, it's probably never going to be at the point where one or two of the companies that are there selling to roofing channels have 30 or 40% market share, but I think there is a, a pretty significant number of customers out there who, who want what the value proposition that a company like GAF Energy is bringing. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we talk a lot about your solar career, but you had what I would consider a pretty exciting career change when you went from solar into the EV space and you went with one of the most exciting companies. It was a buzzword for a really long time. They're in the press, they're in the news for all the right reasons and all the wrong reasons now. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, but uh, you made the transition from GAF Energy over to Rivian. And what was your specific, uh, what were you specifically asked? What was the charge that you were given when you joined Rivian? Yeah, so when I joined Rivian, you know, I think they they were excited to bring me on board. I was excited to join because it was that, again, talking a lot about that intersection of renewable energy, energy as a whole, and transportation or mobility, electric vehicles, things like that. Um, so you know, part of my original charge going to, to Rivian was to help help them think about ways to introduce uh, renewable energy into the portfolio, uh, whether it's product or services or just um, features that were going to be built into charging products or the vehicle itself, um, things like that before I fully, you know, jumped into the, the charging business as well and started doing that. So one, thinking about energy was great. I knew what I was doing. Two, thinking about charging was kind of new to me at Probably didn't know what I was doing, but I had to learn really quickly. Rocket ship, and you can't, you can't. Uh, a guy like me can't say like, "Hey, hold up, stop making trucks." I need to learn about charging, so you have to learn that business really, really quickly, uh, and get ramped and up to speed really fast. But that that was kind of the exciting part of it, really, is saying, "Great, take your energy expertise," because we know the customers who are thinking about electric 
speed, the lower likelihood of inbound energy as well, renewable energy in particular, apply that to our charging business and start thinking of new products, new features, um, new ways to talk to customers, things like that, so that Rivian was kind of set up in the space to be a, a leader when it came to having that conversation with the customer around what does it mean when you're buying an electric vehicle for your energy consumption, or if you're already on solar or some other renewable energy uh, program, you should be thinking about an electric vehicle. So that's kind of where the, the really nice interplay came, came about. Yeah, so thinking about all of the e all of the auto manufacturers are moving at some level into electrifying their fleet. Some of them have made the very uh, bold claims is to say that they're going to electrify their entire fleet. Other states are sort of mandating that fleets become electrified just because they're requiring all cars to, that are going to be sold past certain dates to be electric vehicles exclusively, removing combustion engines. And I would say generally that that's all fantastic news. That's great tailwinds, both for the the space and the, and the industry, but also for the world, for the climate, for decarbonization, all these sorts of things, the electrification of our lives. So if you were to sort of like conceptualize what, uh, why that's a good thing, and also if you were to sort of like steel man why that's not a great thing, I'd love to get your sort of take on what, what the world might look like. What's the real opportunity as we sort of electrify the way that we transport, the way that we move ourselves through vehicles? Yeah, you know, I'll say like bottom line, I think electrification as a whole is, is a great thing, right? So electrify everything, clean the grid. A lot of people are talking about that in the industry and that's my perspective of what, as well and kind of the driving force behind a lot of the work that I've done. So electrify everything, clean the grid. So taking you know, petroleum products, natural gas, kind of all of the, the high carbon emitters off of the grid, replacing that, you know, with replacing the demand side with, with um, vehicles or other things that are now electrified and then bringing more renewables onto the grid is sort of the big picture, really. That's the, that's the big idea. Um, I think that it's obviously a transition and it's going to take time. All of us in the industry wish we could move faster. Um, in terms of electrification, the, you know, the fleet as a whole, I think we're fertiling towards that for a couple different reasons. One, there's the regulatory or statutory frameworks that are being put in place where states or other entities are saying like, Hey, you have to be electric by all electric by 2035, 2040, some, you know, some time and date. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. If you look at the, the history of the auto, automotive industry, um, every time there has been a big sort of step increase in things like fuel efficiency, it's not because the automakers were banding together and saying, we need to make more fuel efficient vehicles. It's because there was some regulatory structure that was put in place that said like, Hey, we're going to go from a you know, corporate average of 18 miles per gallon to 22. And all of a sudden it goes from 18 to 22. And then they say, hey, we're going to go from 22 to 27. All of a sudden the average fuel economy of the fleet for manufacturers is from 22 to 27 miles per gallon, right? That's sort of how it's typically happened in, in the past. Um, so I think, you know, having mandates around electrification is important. But quite honestly, the other side of the equation is, again, the demand side. People who are experiencing driving and owning an electric vehicle are loving it. Um, I drive an electric vehicle. I also have a gas powered vehicle and my gas powered vehicle has gotten maybe 800 miles on it in the last year. Right. I just, I don't drive it. And I never think about it because the beauty and, and, and wonders of driving an electric vehicle just far outstrip that of, of my ice vehicle that I I'm looking out the window right now. I'm like, why do I even have that still? Uh, I got to take it to the gas station. It's almost out of gas. I got to take it to the gas station. It's miserable. Like who wants to do that? Put a hundred dollars worth of gas into my, into my truck. 
when I could just plug in overnight and it cost me like $8 to, to charge up um, and never have to kind of leave the, the comfort of my own garage. So I think that on, on the just convenience, the, the satisfaction, the joy of driving an electric vehicle is more and more people are doing that, experience it, and then telling their friends, you're going to see the demand, you're, or we're seeing the demand for electric vehicles really, really spike right now. I might have some biases because I'm in California and I can't walk half a block without seeing five EVs. But I think the rest of the country is kind of experiencing what California's gone through five or six years ago now, where more and more people are driving those EVs, telling their friends, giving them test rides, saying, feel the acceleration, right? Like feel the like the coolness of one pedal driving, knowing that when you go downhill, you're actually getting more electricity back than you're putting out when, when you just don't get that in, in any other vehicle. So the whole experience is is generally better. Um, and I think that's where, where it's, that inflection point is coming. So whether or not an OEM wants to go 100% electric or 80% or 50% of their, their fleet that, you know, electrified, customers are going to be asking for it more and more and more. Um, and they're, they're already there. They're already doing it. So that's, that's kind of the exciting part of the industry. Yeah, I want to I jump into some of the strategies that EV companies might employ, but I have to ask as well, just because we're on the subject and obviously you are such a great advocate for it. I'm, I'm an electric vehicle driver as well, have been for a while. And um, I, I never have been a car guy until cars became electric. And all of a sudden, I, I kind of think about myself as a car guy, but I geek out on the electric vehicles and the electric vehicles that are coming out. And, and uh, you know, uh, and again, it's just a, it's a it's just a much more pleasant experience to drive electric vehicles. And, and some of that, in fairness, has to do with uh, most of the electric vehicles are premium vehicles. And so add some of the creature comforts. But some of them, those creature comforts are intrinsic to the fact that they're electric vehicles. And so um, that being said, um, some of the misconceptions, and it's worth just talking about a couple of them here. So one of the number one questions that I get asked, and I would just challenge you, I'll ask you right off the bat, what's when, when people are either electric vehicle skeptics, or if they want to try to get you and it got you, what's one of the first questions that they tend to sort of ask you about your electric vehicle when you, when you tell them you drive electric? Oh gosh, I, I could go through the laundry list of reasons not to drive an electric vehicle that I've heard, um, whether it's directly from friends and relatives who are not, you know, who are skeptics, whether it's from doing the thing you're not supposed to do, just scrolling through the comments of an article or an Instagram TV. Um, yeah, the one I, the, the two that I hear the most is, well, where does the electricity come from? You know, and that's the conversation that we're having today is electrify everything clean to grid. There's a million like academic studies that I could point to. You could point to the science of centralized generation versus like blowing something up under the hood of your car every single time you, you press on the accelerator. Um, but really that conversation comes down to like, well, where's the electricity? I think that's the exciting part because there's a, a real and honest answer to that, which is from the grid today, which is getting cleaner literally every day because most big utilities are adding renewable generation to their portfolio and they are decommissioning the oldest, dirtiest coal-fired power plants literally every day. That is happening and that is market forces taking care of that. That is not government regulation. That is not me demanding it as a customer, that's literally market forces taking place because we know that solar and wind are the lowest cost of electricity for those big utilities. So, so that's number one. Number two is, you know, in, in our respective businesses saying, and more and more people are going solar every day on their rooftops. So the beauty is that, you know, if you have an electric vehicle and you add that to your, your sort of portfolio of vehicles, 
Um, your energy demand is going to go up in your home. The best way to manage and maintain your, your, your bills and your own footprint is put some solar on your roof, put a battery in your garage, and suddenly you've got this really virtuous circle happening in terms of generation and consumption throughout your home and your vehicle. So those are, that's like the big one. And the second one always comes down to like, oh, well, um, what is the impact of mining cobalt or lithium or all these things? And I'm like, man, it's like the same like scientific studies I can point to that say, hey, is it better to like, like they're, they're both extractive activities to mine petroleum, right? Extract, not mine, but like drill for and extract petroleum, transport it, refine it, do all of these things that you literally use at one time. Like it's a single moment in time that that is a useful product to the end user, meaning putting it into your vehicle and driving with it. And then it goes away again, everything again. versus uh, basically getting the, the components of a battery put together that are good for the next, I think Tesla just released a study that said after 200,000 miles, they're seeing like, you know, I can't remember what it was, like 15 or 20% degradation of battery, but something really good. Right? So knowing that you can drive a vehicle 200,000 miles and you're, you're not seeing like massive battery degradation, battery, like at 80 something percent capacity, you still have probably another 200,000 miles in that battery before you need a new one. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways to, to kind of counter a lot of the arguments for like why an EV is quote unquote, I'll use the air quotes now, bad um, with reality, right? Like whether it's an academic or scientific study or just the reality of ownership. Right. It's just a better experience overall. It's cheaper. It's cleaner. There's, you know, the grid is getting cleaner. So the more you use your EV, like the less polluting uh, or carbon emitting uh, feedstock you're, you're using. Like there's so many great arguments around the sort of the naysayer high level didn't dig deep on the information kind of why you shouldn't go EVs. So that's where I get passionate and really conversations. Um, and I think that the more people kind of hear and understand that message over and over again, the less likely they are to have the sort of those two big, well, why do you, you know, here's why EVs are not good and sort of trying to get you in those gotcha scenarios, but there's like, there's very rational and clear answers for all of that. Yeah. I think we should be careful about getting our information from memes, right? So, I mean, many people have probably seen a picture of an EV uh, in some flyover state in the middle of the, uh, the world that's uh, there's an electric vehicle charger that's plugged into a large diesel generator, for example, that's just charging the car. And and I think that the point there is, is that I think you're making both points really clearly. You do have to electrify everything, but then you also have to clean the grid. You know, there is an infrastructure that's still being built. And I think that's something that you're pretty passionate about, something that you've worked on, something that you were familiar with at your time with Rivian as well. Um, you know, we have this infrastructure of gas stations across the country and it's pretty easy to, you know, to, to, to cross the country in a combustion engine. And a lot of people uh, will point to the fact that owning an electric vehicle right now, that there are, while there are certainly some obvious benefits to, you know, not having to go to gas stations from time to time, when you're traveling far distances, you're not near your home, you can't fill your truck up for eight bucks. Uh, how do you fill it and how do you travel? And that's actually one of the things that um, as a person that lives in Salt Lake City, I don't have the same access to charging stations that you do there in California. That was something that you were working on, at least at some level at Rivian. So I'd love for you to talk about that. And what are some of the things that you're excited about in terms of uh, building out an infrastructure for, for, for vehicles? And, and how do you see uh, us catching up on the electric side um, of building up? And, and, and what are some things that maybe our listeners uh, would love to hear about that they, that you know, that those are things that are coming down the pipe that, that, you, you know, maybe you could get people excited about. 
Yeah, there, there's a couple things going on. I, I think one, um, there's a shift that's happening now where, where EVs just have greater range, right? So my first electric vehicle that I ever drove was a Nissan Leaf and it got like 78 miles of range. And you, you had like what was real range anxiety, right? Like, where am I going to charge? How am I going to charge? How far can I go before I have a freak out moment and I turn off the air conditioner and roll up the windows and like turn the radio off and make sure it's like trying to drive it out lights on, you know, like all of those things that go through your head when you, when you have 78 miles of range, you commute 45 miles each way to work. Right? There's things that, that are, that are problematic. That doesn't really exist anymore. Most, you know, new, new EVs coming on the market have well over 200 miles of range. Uh, many of them have over 300 miles of range. So one of my brilliant former colleagues at Rivian, Sarah Esslinger, likes to say all the time, like, Hey, it's not range anxiety. It's charging anxiety, which is like, well, the range is great, but where am I going to charge when I need to come back? <laughs> um, so a lot of what we were working on at Rivian was, was developing or building out the, the charging infrastructure to give people the confidence to go on those long road trips, to, to do the things that you would typically do in your ICE vehicle, even if it's only like once every few months, right? It's just giving you that confidence so you don't have the charging anxiety. So the part of the business that I was overseeing um, EC charging, so both home and the Rivian Waypoints network was thinking about, great, start your day with 100% state of charge. You've got 300 miles of fun. We know that you're going to a destination somewhere, oftentimes to have even more fun, um, and that might be state and national parks. That's kind of the, the thing that we were focusing on really, really um, tightly was, was saying, great, we're building adventure trucks. People are going to go on hikes, backpacking, you know, camping adventures. Let's put overnight charging in those locations or places where we know you're going to be parked for five or six hours if you're just doing a day. That's level two charging is the perfect example or place for that. The second piece is that the DC fast charging. So on your way, on your drive, on your commute, whatever it is, if you're driving 500 miles to your location and you've only got 300 miles of range, what do you do? So that's a lot of thinking about the, the DC fast charging network. Um, Sarah, who I mentioned, is leading that up and thinking about where do we put our, our DC fast triggers so that in the next 30 or 40 minutes, you can have a, you know, go from 20% to 85, 90% state of charge, get to your final destination or location where you have access to those level two chargers plugging overnight. So putting all of those pieces in place so that you can have the full, whether it's commute or uh, adventure travel, or just generally, you know, living your life and driving a vehicle type of travel, um, putting all of those pieces in place was really important for Rivian to make sure that infrastructure is out there so that we can reduce people's charging anxiety in terms of like, well, where am I going to charge electric vehicles? The cool thing is, you know, there are some big national networks out there. So you have your Electrify America, your EVGOs, uh, Flow, like there's people putting infrastructure in place as well. So it's not coming to only the OEM, manu like vehicle manufacturers. Um, but all of these things, like to your point, are taking time. So they're, they're coming online now, but it's accelerating and happening faster and faster. This is going to be one of the most exciting times in like the history of EVs and EV charging because there's gobs of, of federal funding coming out uh, through a number of uh, federal programs. Uh, the biggest one, NEVI, uh, is putting billions of dollars out there building fast charging corridors and infrastructure. In, in mostly in places that haven't been served to date. So looking at the places where the private, not private networks, but the private companies aren't building public networks where the OEMs necessarily are going and putting dollars towards that so that, uh, you know, the entire U.S. can be blanketed with DC fast charging as well as destination, level, you know, level two charging at, at 
destination. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting, actually. So, and I would say that I experience living here again, and I'm I'm recording this from Salt Lake City, uh, Salt Lake City area anyway, and and uh, I I do have uh, not the not the not the uh, range anxiety, but the charge anxiety. So I mean, I do have to sort of like be thoughtful about like, okay, I'm planning out my trip, and I do need to know where I'm going to charge if I'm not gonna if I'm going to be going over again. I have a my my, my electric car has probably um, a not quite 300 mile range, but close to 300 mile range, at least the way that I use air conditioning and other things. So, um, but the point is, is that, um, you know, charge anxiety is a real thing for those of us that don't live in California, don't have access to sort of like a, almost a limitless supply of, of, of uh, chargers that exist uh, of all the diff- all of the different varieties. So um, I'm glad to hear that, that, that there's a lot of smart people working on solving that problem. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that to, to build a charging station is in a lot of ways much simpler than putting in fuel stations. You know, you can kind of put them almost anywhere, and and uh, and you're starting to see them pop up. You know, my favorite place to charge is I take my daughter to the library, and there's a charger there, and I can uh, go to the library and and you know plug my car. So it's pretty simple if I'm not doing it at home. So yeah, so maybe thinking about now just from a business perspective. So what are some of the real business opportunities that you were hopeful that maybe Rivian or others might be able to realize that can help promote not just the electrification of our grid, not just the proliferation of electric vehicles, but maybe bringing some of those things together to further promote decarbonization. And, you know, what are some of the things you'd like to see some of the electric car manufacturers do uh, in terms of like business innovations that are things that you could get really excited about? Yeah, there, there's some, one really specific thing that I, that I I'll think back to and I'll I'll talk about in a second is it's really when the OEM vehicle manufacturers or the the network charging network providers are thinking about developing infrastructure for charging, um, pairing that with real renewable energy. That's something that Rivian is really good at. There's some really brilliant folks that are working on that at Rivian right now. And one of the examples is um, we opened up uh, a Waypoint uh, charging location in Paris, Tennessee, and paired that with uh, a utility scale solar uh, project. So we were, were, you know, we're saying, hey, 100% of the network is backed by renewable energy. Um, some of those might come in the in the form of renewable energy certificates or RECs. Uh, but what we were really trying to do is saying, like, we are going to make real investments in renewable energy infrastructure that pairs with our charging infrastructure. But more importantly, like drives the adoption or the the acceleration of the building of renewable energy projects, right? So if we're saying, hey, there's a six megawatt community solar, you know, project happening, we're being developed today, we'll be a primary off-taker and we'll take a megawatt of that, right? And that gives the confidence to the developers, the community, uh, the financiers to say like, yep, this project is going to go forward, right? So because we took that one megawatt, there's a whole, you know, there's five more that are being developed for the community solar aspect. So I think that's really important is not just saying, hey, we're going to go out there and deploy a whole bunch of assets and dollars and investment in, in the infrastructure for charging, but also saying we're going to back that with real renewable energy projects because that's the way that we electrify everything and clean the grid. Um, and we, we're not kind of punting that or kicking that can down the road and hoping that like the utility or the community or somebody else picks up the uh, the slack there and we're going to say, Hey, we're just going to, we're going to buy Rex until then. 
Um, but really being an active participant in that marketplace for bringing new renewables onto the grid, I think is really important. That could be solar or wind or geothermal or something else, right? So there's there's a lot of ways to think about that, but I, I think that's where um, the EV industry can play an even, even bigger role in, in promoting cleaning of the grid. I think there's other ways to do it, knowing that like EV drivers are probably we know that are more likely to go solar than non-EV drivers. So partnering with solar companies and finding ways to, to get EV drivers uh, to do home solar as well is going to be really, really important. Yeah, I'd love to get your take on that, conceptualizing that for some of our listeners as well. So uh, obviously you have the experience being a marketer, marketing directly just the product of solar to homeowners and consumers. You have the product of, uh, or you have the experience of working on the electric vehicle side with your experience at Rivian. But you also have the experience of really setting up channel partnership through the GAF experience that you had. How could you can sort of like conceptualize some of the large brands or some of the people, Rivian, for example, that might work with um, homeowners to provide a better experience? And I would say that t- Tesla has done it OK, uh, but but I don't think that they've sort of like cracked that nut yet either. So so h- kind of conceptualize for us how a GM or Rivian or one of these other large manufacturers might be able to really help consumers make that transition from EV, uh, or excuse me, from con- combustion engine, ICE engine to uh, both electric vehicle as well as uh, solarizing their home, electrifying their home, and and really changing their sort of like carbon footprint, reducing it by when you talk about car and you talk about uh, the the carbonization or the carbon cost of, of home ownership, it's something around 70 to 75% of your carbon footprint is tied up in those two specific things. Yeah, um, man. So there's so many partnerships that are happening today. So I think, you know, Ford and Sunrun have a, have a partnership, GM and SunPower have a partnership. Um, and you're making a great point in that, like, I haven't seen a lot of traction in, in any of those, right? Like, so not, not to call them out, but like saying there just hasn't been as much traction as I think a lot of us expect to see. I think there's, that's for a couple of reasons. You know, I think the, the legacy OEM manufacturers of vehicles, their job is to to be really, really good at manufacturing, like design and manufacturing and then distribution of vehicles to their sales network. And their sales network or their dealerships are really, really good at things like getting people into the showroom to test drive a vehicle, financing that vehicle, and then like getting it out and doing the, all the after sales, like service and, and things like that. What doesn't fall into that category is selling and managing the project of going solar. So you can have those partnerships or those brand tie-ups, but unless you have, you know, a company or companies that are really well aligned and understand each other's business, understand each other's customers, because the vehicles customer and the solar customer, while the same person are different mindsets, right? Different mindsets at different times. So unless you're really, really closely integrating how those two operate together and work, I think it's, it's just really hard to find success because everybody wants what they want for their business, which is sell a car or sell a solar system, right? Not sell a car in solar, sell a solar system. And that's where the, the, those, you know, partnerships probably need a little bit of work and where I could see them, them operating more it's going to be really interesting as things like bi-directional charging come into play more because now you have a product, like an actual physical piece of hardware that is going to come likely from the energy company or at least have to be installed by the energy company versus the, the OEM vehicles manufacturer, vehicle manufacturer. Um, so there needs to be much tighter tie-ins and integrations, both from like brand, customer handoffs, sales journeys, things like that that are going to have to happen. Um, 
I don't know what those companies are doing because I haven't worked there or been there yet, but um, I can see there's going to be a, a big need for much, much closer integration and working together than probably has been in the past when some of those new product offerings start really coming online. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that's kind of interesting. Unlike the roofing industry, where when you go to get a roof, it's it can be somewhat difficult other than to say, hey, when you get a roof, it's a great time to get solar. It can be pretty difficult to sort of like combine you know, the conversation of solar with roof because they really do serve two completely different purposes. Um, when you're talking about electric vehicles, though, the, the connection with solar, the obvious question is not do you want solar? The obvious question is how are you going to power your vehicle? And obviously you need to come up with a charger. And so Rivian needed to solve that problem. Most of the electric vehicle companies need to solve uh, that problem first. It's like, hey, look, we're going to reduce some of the friction so that you can get a charger. And, you know, a typical charger costs for your home or anywhere from in the several hundred dollars on the very, very low end, probably a couple grand, uh, can be a lot more than that. But think about it kind of in the couple grand range. What's interesting, and I've done the math on this, obviously, being a solar guy, if you were going to say, hey, I'm going to drive 10,000 miles a year in gas, and assuming you're getting $4 per gallon, which again, depending on the state you're in, that's really cheap or really expensive. But $4 a gallon for you in California, you're at five bucks. For, for me here in Utah, I'm at three fifty or something like that. Not that you would know because you don't go to the gas station, uh, but $3.50. But if you figure $4 a gallon of gas, uh, it's going to cost you at 30 miles a gallon, it's going to cost you about $1,300, $1,400 a year. And assuming that gas prices don't go up, like that's never happened, right? But assuming gas prices don't go up for a 200,000 mile battery life, you're talking about something in the sort of like 25 to $30,000 of cost for gas just to propel your vehicle. Uh, juxtapose that against solar. So you got your 2K to add the charger and then it's probably six to $7,000 of solar panels that you need on your roof. Uh, net the sales tax out, or the sales, the tax credit out, you're probably five-ish thousand dollars and you get to drive you know, 10,000 miles a year, all for that cost included uh, of around $5,000 in solar. You know, when, when, when you have that sort of a conversation, it, it makes one, the cost of owning your electric vehicle significantly less. And the conversation seems really obvious. You know, when I, whenever I, I, I gotta tell you as a solar guy, I've told people how, uh, you know, that for $5,000 worth of solar, they can propel their car, or they can drive their car for 10,000 miles a year for the next 20 years. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a pretty incredible thought. I probably sold a lot of electric vehicles on accident just by talking about how solar is such an efficient uh, way to charge your vehicle. And uh, that's one of the things that I think that one, we want to, you know, in the solar industry, one of the things that I get really excited about is helping channel partners figure out ways to reduce the friction of converting people from, in, in, you know, from, from, from uh, combustion engines to electric vehicles by saying, look, it's always a transition for someone. They've got to figure out how to charge their car, you know, and and I know that there are people that buy electric vehicles and never actually add a charger to their house. Um, I think that they're really missing out if they do it that way. <laughs> but uh, but there are people that do that. Um, but uh, anyway, there's lots I could talk about that. But what are some of the real opportunities you think that solar companies should be taking advantage of? As they, as they sort of like conceptualize what these channel partnerships might look like, either with local dealerships or on bigger scale with the actual uh, manufacturers themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, the when I think about the expertise of a solar company, um, on, on one side of the question, it's really great at, at 
customer journey, sales, acquisition, things like that, right? Like solar companies have really built up the, keep, the capacity and capabilities that like really complex conversations with the customer, break it down to like, what are the benefits for you? What are the features of this solar product and benefits that the customer can you and walk through people, you know, homeowners through that process, build a lot of trust because it's not, there's not a lot of like, I'm just going to call you and close a, a solar deal in the next 30 minutes. There's a lot of trust building. There's a lot of like personal interactions and, and kind of um, walking through a process, right? So like solar companies are really, really good at that. Um, vehicles companies are really good at like, do you need a car or not? Here's 1.9% finance, right? So like <laughs> there's sort of the the more transactional nature of, of a car sale like, sometimes than there is in, in uh, relative to a solar cell. The second piece is the installation right, process. So again, vehicle sales traditionally coming through through the dealership um, is like you leave the dealership and you only come back when there's a problem you need servicing. Solar company is like, I'm gonna be in your home. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send people to your house. We're gonna send a crew, there's gonna be trucks, there's gonna be equipment, there's gonna be people on your roof for a day or two, right? There's, there's a much more intimate experience there, which the car makers are not used to, but need to understand that because now you're going to have to do the same thing when someone installs a charger in their garage. Um, so I think really where the, the solar companies can come in is, is owning that component of the relationship. Um, you're talking a much more technical conversation when, when you think about installing EV charger. Right? In, the, in the world of installing things, it's not all that difficult, but it's a very, very different conversation that a customer is having with an installer than they are with purchasing a vehicle where you're kind of in the showroom, here's all the cool bells and whistles of the vehicle. Do you want it or not? Great, go talk to our F&I folks. We'll get you out the door today. Um, so the technical conversations that, that solar companies are, are used to and willing to have with the customer relative to a dealership or a traditional OEM manufacturer are very, very different. But that's starting to, to bleed together now because you're having um, an EV charger installed. So, so solar companies have a real, real opportunity to come in, step in in that part of the conversation and say like, great, we'll handle the installation component because we have electricians on staff or relationship with electricians who are used to going and being in customers' homes, showing up at their house. Like I don't know any dealerships that show up at a customer's home, literally for any reason. Um, and, and having that kind of a relationship with the customer that leads to the next step, which is, exactly what you're talking about. Like, hey, do you know the economic case for going solar when you're buying an EV? Did you know that like the ROI or the payback is literally like 11 or 12 months at this point when you pair solar with an EV based on the, the cost that, you know, the savings that you're going to generate from one, the savings of your energy bill to, you know, electrification versus gas. Like those are the conversations that I think solar companies are really, really good at having with customers that they've been having them for years in that context of save money, you know, lower your carbon footprint in the construction project that we're going to help you walk through because there's like permitting and inspections and all the other things, again, that automakers are not used to having. So that's where the, the expertise of a, of a solar company, like a residential solar company comes into play because they're, you've been building that capability, that, that absolute like focus for decades now. And, um, I don't think a dealership model is thinking about that, nor do they want to, nor should they.
So I think that's the big advantage that the solar companies have today, where they could be offering that kind of customer relationship um, in partnership with an OEM, saying like, hey, when you sell a car, like there's a lot more that's going to need to happen these days than in the past. Let us handle that. That's where I see the big outcome. There's so, so many questions I have for you. So like, for example, one of the things that Tesla does and Rivian does is the way that you order a car is so dramatically different than the traditional method for buying a car. And I would say that for most people, uh, that they, they actually find while they don't get to go and feel and touch and kick the tires, um, you know, it's more of a cerebral thing. You have to kind of like, you don't go and make an impulse buy necessarily for a Rivian or a Tesla. You, you really do your research, you're analytical about it. But then the actual process of purchasing for most people is probably much more pleasant than going and sitting at the dealership for several, several hours. That being said, if you compare the dealership model, the way that they currently sell, they're making profit certainly on the vehicle sometimes, but then they have their sales manager, their job is to move vehicles. And then they have their F&I department, their finance department, and their job is to make money on all the ancillary products. And I actually think solar is actually perfect for it. You take a look, you know, you have loans, you have gap, you have uh, clear coat, you have all of the sort of ancillary products that the finance department sells you oftentimes at higher, certainly profit margins, but even higher absolute profit than actually selling the car itself. And solar is one of those products that couples so nicely. You could imagine a dealership, if one of the options at the very end of the transaction was, would you like to prepay for your fuel forever? It's only $50 a month to prepay for your fuel forever, um, you know, $5,000, or you can just buy it at the pump and at the pump, it's gonna be, you know, something 20, 30, 40, $50,000 over the lifetime of the vehicle, which one would you rather do? You could imagine that, that finance departments would sell a whole lot of prepaid fuel packages if you could just roll it into the car payment. And, and, and solar is one of those products where that is essentially what you're doing. Is you're just prepaying for your fuel for the next, you know, forever lifetime of vehicle or lifetime of that vehicle. Actually, lifetime of that vehicle and probably your next two vehicles, uh, frankly. And so I think it's a product that, that is made for the existing dealership model. Probably doesn't work if you take a look at Tesla as as an archetype probably doesn't work as great for the tesla sales where they're not selling gap insurance and all of the other ancillary products you just buy the tesla when you buy the tesla compared to the addition model what's your what's your take on that do you feel like one model could be more successful for solar companies than the other um yeah you know i haven't thought about it that way so i'm glad you brought that up um the you know the the perspective that i have and me i will couch this before I get into this work. If when I was a little kid, like I am a car guy. I always had the posters of cars on my wall and subscribed to car and driver and motor trend starting when I was like 12 years old and still read the articles every day uh, or every week now. Like I am a car guy. And if you asked me between the ages of 12 and 18, what my dream job would be, I would have told you car salesman, even use car salesman as long as I get to like sit in a car all day and, and talk about them. Um, but I will admit that in my adult life, I've learned that like the buying experience at a car dealership is not ideal. Maybe they are for some people somewhere, but certainly for me, it's been a stressful, painful experience. There's negotiations over price that change like eight times throughout the negotiation. And they have all these strange techniques, like the four box or four square, or they call it technique where they're like writing numbers in different boxes and showing them, you know, like, you know, you mentioned like business school for like, I have an MBA. I was confused. It was as heck the last time I bought a, a new car in a dealership because I was like, 
I literally just told you I have X amount of dollars per month to spend to show me the cars in that category. And you showed me a car that cost $20,000 and you showed me a car that cost $59,000 and you told me they both can work for me. And I'm like, that cannot be true, right? It's like, there's all kinds of terrible experiences that, that come into the, the dealership model because of the transactional nature of the sale. That being said, um, I do think there, you know, when you, when you put it in the way of like, Hey, you're buyers are in the right mindset of like kind of an upsell opportunity, you know, it's coming. Like, you know, when they hand you off to the F and I folks, like the upsell is coming and I'm like, do I really need an undercoating? I don't know. Like peace of mind for $800 feels like it's worth it. Right. So there's all of these other opportunities there. I have a little bit of bias on personal experience that like, sometimes I just want to get out of there and like talk about my next big project. Uh, with people who are, are kind of experts in it. And that's where I, I do think the, you know, the, the solar companies have done a really good job of, um, especially as of late, like training their sales team to be a, a trusted advisor in that consultative sale. Because to your earlier point, like every solar system is a custom sale. And I think that's what differs greatly from the, the dealership model, whereas it's just an add-on, right? So like you're not, customize like you can't say i want a truck with six wheels and they're going to be building for you but you can say like hey well what about like this solar system i, I know you told me you could fit like you know 5kw over here but can you fit another 2kw over there like you know you could have that that more consultative conversation with, with a customer um that takes place and and solar sales teams and, and other groups are really good at having those conversations now to say like do you actually need that like why are you asking me that what are you trying to achieve here? Oh, you want to max out, you, you want to max out your offset. You want to max out your, your, you know, carbon reduction or footprint. Oh, you want to max out savings. Like that's actually a different conversation. You might actually want a smaller system because you're not going to, you know, you don't want to oversize it that much. Right. Those are the conversations that sales folks are, are good at having on the solar side that I just don't know if the, the dealership model is good at because they're going to be like max size all the time. Don't care if it's good for you or not. And you might come away from that conversation feeling like, oh, they got me again. Like they sold me the undercoating, right? And like the weird gap insurance, <laughs> like now they got me on the solar thing. So I, I'm not personally convinced yet, but that might be my own, biased by my own experience in buying new cars over the last 25 years. No, those are great points. And I think that you, you maybe bring the bias of that the dealership doesn't have what's in your best interest at mind there. And and that's possible. That's possibly true. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, they're trying to move products. And um, I, I do believe, though, the consultative part of selling solar and you've sold a lot of solar. So, you know, this. a lot of it's the illusion of choice. And at the end of the day, there really is a right solution for most customers. And there's really only a couple levers that will move up or down slightly what that right solution for the customer is. Oftentimes that consultative process is, is just taking the customer through the journey of helping them realize what that right product is. And so, um, you know, a lot of times when I've trained sales organizations before, I've called it, it's an illusion of choice because you have to help customers understand that there is a right choice ultimately. And they're really leaning on you and your expertise to help them understand that that is the case. If it were simple and they had all the information going in, they wouldn't use you, you wouldn't be needed. You'd have a shopping cart experience and Jeff Bezos would be selling a lot of solar on Amazon. But for whatever reason, customers have not been able to translate, sunshine's on my roof, shows up as savings on my on my electricity bill and they're there for whatever reason well for those reasons they're also paying a premium to have a sales guy come and sell to them rel relative to the the handful of shopping cart experiences that exist on the internet today 
and uh, and you know even even customers that do their ultimate due diligence and and work with a trusted advisor at the kitchen table and then they go online and find out that you can get it cheaper online still tend to lean toward that trusted advisor just because they feel like they need that reassurance and confidence and and maybe the dealerships can't be that um, I believe with the right set of software and the right set of tools you can do two things one you can keep the greedy sales reps and I don't mean to lump all sales organizations sales uh, on the car side into into a category but if you were going to bring that bias into the conversation i do think that you could provision it in such a way with the right tools so that you could make sure the customers really got the right you know the right thing for them and um you know again with the right set of tools you could make it not just a one-size-fits-all but you could make the tool do the work and then the person that's sitting in front of them can give the assurance that you know, this isn't us, the car guys, just trying to sell you something extra. This is this tool that's this nationally accepted, widely approved tool that's telling you that for your configuration, how you use power in this new vehicle that you just purchased, that this $5,000 plus the extra is going to be able to eliminate your electricity bill and power your vehicle. So I, I, I'm really hopeful that that can, that can work um, and, 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 and personally have a lot of sort of ambitions to try to make that come to fruition. Uh, but I do think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of sort of baggage that already exists in the car sale that you have to overcome if you're going to do it at point of sale, um, either in a shopping cart experience or through the F&I department. But but again, I'm really hopeful that um, both for the betterment, the, 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 the electrification of the grid and the, excuse me, the electrification of everything and the cleaning up of the grid, I'm really hopeful that those things can come to fruition. Yeah, I think you nailed it right there is, is the, the tools that exist for the digital experience, more and more customers are buying that way. Um, so whoever figures that out will be the winner because that's that's what I think customers are looking for today is, is how do I go on, have more of that shopping cart experience, but have enough information that I can make a decision. Because if, you know, in the old days, that information typically came through the sales rep. But if you can replicate that in a digital sense, it says like, great, let's talk about, let's talk about sizing. Well, let's go about why, understand what your motivations are, talk about sizing and maxing for, you know, savings or offset or whatever else it'd be. And then boom, here's your proposal. Here's your design, here's your proposal. Like now the choice is yes or no. Um, yeah, I, I think you're nailing it. The, per, the, the, the people and organizations who figure that out will, will really come away as the winners in the end because it's a much, much better customer experience. Yeah, I mean, with all products, you got to meet the customer where they're at. I think with solar, uh, they, they've been sitting at the kitchen table waiting for someone to knock on their door and explain to them why they need to go solar. You know, they're, they're not calling off of, uh, you know, billboards. They're not calling off of a lot of this sort of traditional marketing methods as, I mean, some of that for sure. But, but for the most part, you got to meet the customer where they're at. And most customers are in a wait and see. And so you've got to go find them. Uh, in the solar industry today, but uh, but certainly those tides will change, and and uh, I think companies can put themselves in great positions to be able to uh, be prepared for the customers that are going to move off of just the passive interest and more into the active looking and exploratory phase. And 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 I think the car dealership is one of those fantastic opportunities for us, uh, frankly. So, well, Adam, I'd love to get your sort of like hot takes on where you'd like to see or where you believe uh, the EV and solar space are moving. Um, uh, in the next just handful of years and, and, and why you're excited about uh, both of those industries. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam, if uh, you know, you're, you're uh, I, I'd love to have you come back on. There's about 50 other things that I'd love to chat with you about. <laughs> um, uh, just 
on a personal level, on a professional level, and just an exciting uh, uh, guest for us. And and I think that you've you you've brought to the to the podcast a new perspective again because of your experience on the electric vehicle side, because of your experience in the solar space, because of your experience uh, in partnerships, both in on the charging side, on the electric vehicle side, but also the channel partnerships that you were able to establish with GAF. It's just really an exciting perspective that you bring um, to, to the solar podcast. And, and we'd love to have you come back on and, and, and share some of the more experiences that you're having. I know that there's some new exciting things are, uh, that are on the horizon for you as well. And, and, uh, we'll have to bring you back on as some of those things come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to talk again. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to the solar podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and share us with your colleagues and friends who are passionate about solar, renewable energy, and the future of the environment. We'll talk to you soon.